Welcome to the Wise Roots podcast. My name is Hugo Menard, and my guest today is Kelly Sparta. She's a transformational shaman and the founder of the Sacred Power and Purpose Mystery School, working with people on integrating real-world skills with energetic skills to optimize a life path of happiness, success, and inner peace. She's the host of the popular Spirit Sherpa podcast. For those who are waking up to the existence of the metaphysical, the multidimensional world, uh, things can get confusing. So on the podcast, she shares her years of experience as a shaman, healer, psychic, channel, medium, empath, spiritual coach, uh, and so much more. So welcome, Kelly. So good to have you here. So glad to be here, Hugo. This sounds, this I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. Um, when I was doing uh, research into it and, and reading things on your website, one of the things that jumped out to me was that you got to a point in your life where you dumped everything and you went to live with some shamans. Yeah. I'm really fascinated by, well, First, if we could, like, how do you describe a shaman? And then I'm really interested in sort of what happened when you were with those shamans. Yeah, so um, the first thing I'm going to say is that if you ask 100 shamans what a shaman is, they're going to give you 100 different answers. Okay, so let's let's start with that. Um, I am not a traditional shaman, so like you won't find me doing sweat lodges or ayahuasca journeys or you know, a lot of the things that traditional shamans do, I am a transformational shaman, which is a very different animal. And so uh, my definition of shaman is someone who holds the initiation point for transformation for others. And that requires doing that work myself in order to continue to facilitate for others. That is always the mark of a good shaman is somebody who is doing their own work in addition to facilitating. You can't stay ahead of your students if you don't keep doing your work. Right? Yeah. 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 But I hold the initiation point. That's that's what I do. And uh, sometimes I create the initiation point, right? So if you think about, uh, for instance, if you think about those moments in your life, everybody's got at least one of them, where you're like, this thing happened and everything in my life changed. You know, I, my entire concept of myself rearranged, my entire concept of the world rearranged. You know, I, I completely went off the rails and did something different with my life because I had this moment of clarity, right? That's the sort of thing that I create in the retreats that I run, in the works that I work that I do, things like that. I create those moments of clarity. Whoa. Okay. I want to get into that at some point of how that happens. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> But you asked a question. Yes. I did, uh, yes. So what happened with these shamans when you went and lived with them? Okay. Well, uh, first off, I didn't know they were shamans. I thought they were just people I was working with at the Renaissance Fair. So, you know, this is how the universe works. <laughs> so, um, they, you know, that's not entirely true, uh, but I didn't realize they were shamans. I thought that they were, you know, we were doing ritual together before I moved in with them. You know, they we were doing okay. a magical circle together before I moved in. And, you know, I just, I, because my only context for ritual work was Wicca, I had assumed they were witches, which as it turns out was an incorrect assumption, which they just never corrected me on because it was never relevant in their mind. And so eventually it came out like, you know, over the course of four years that that was not the case. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, all right. And they went, oh, and by the way, you're not a witch either. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm like, okay. What's a shaman? You know, <laughs> no idea, right? right? But you know, we lived together in what I now deem the magical house. 
because that really was the case. We moved in. Uh, it was an old Victorian house. It was about a hundred years old. Uh, it was huge. It had six bedrooms and four baths and three stories. And it had a, a couple of resident ghosts and, you know, there, you know, there was stuff and, you know, a bunch of magical people living in it. And, you know, that number varied from three to six at any given point in time. And then we would put up, you know, during the Renaissance fair season, we had as many as 30 people sleeping there in, in one night. So, you know, I remember at three o'clock in the morning having this massive grail ritual with 30 people passing this magical grail around the room and, and asking, you know, putting collective intent into this. And that was when life just went boom into the, the express train, right? And for the next three months, my friend and I, who had both been the first two people to dr drink from the, the grill, uh, we had both, without speaking to each other about it and without saying it out loud, we had both wished to be on our spiritual paths. And our lives crumbled within very few, few time after that because you have to be careful what you ask for. Spirit said, oh, you want to be on your spiritual path? Great. Let's get everything that's not your spiritual path out of the way. He lost his, his uh, uh, scholarship to his college. And in his last semester of trying to get his engineering degree, lost his scholarship and was unable to, to graduate. And he's like, clearly that's not on my spiritual path. And, and I had a whole bunch of things crumble around me. I don't remember now, but I, I remember that, that, like two, three times a week, we would call up the other one. And we had this thing that like, when you're on the express train, it's like being on the, the, the spiritual roller coaster. And that it, you know, you're, you're supposed to like have your hands up and go wee as you go down the hill. Right. And, and every time something would happen, we would call the other and the person would pick up the phone and say hello. And we would go wee, wee. It's supposed to be fun. Right. Wee. <laughs> It was just this little sad little wee back and forth as we we found out whatever the thing was that had gone crashing to the ground in the in the period of time, but it put us on our path really freaking quick. And right. so yeah. you know that was that was sort of the starting point. I think that was actually before I moved in, um, and uh, and we moved in. I moved in shortly thereafter, and because uh, otherwise I wouldn't have been calling him. <laughs> But um, the the whole process that I went through in that house was, you know, I was the healer for the house and I did the healing work for other people and they would hold space for me and I would channel. Uh, there was an entity that was coming through at the time that I was channeling that was six foot tall and made out of gray stone. And they called him Stone Man. And I, they said that, you know, I would channel him and I would suddenly look like I was six or I don't remember if they said six or seven feet, but big, I was big and uh, made out of gray stone. And he would come in and take um, commitments for your path, what you were choosing. And he would write them on the Akashic as commitments. It's like, be careful what you say to him because he means it. He will write it on the, the firmament and you will be committed to it, right? And so that was what was coming through. Interestingly, a couple of years later, I met a woman and she said that she channeled Stony. And I was like, wait, is he this tall made out of grace? And she's like, oh my God, you channel him too? I'm like, yes. And I'm like, what's he do for you? She's like, he takes commitments. I'm like, yes, that's what he does. And she's like, yeah. So 
you know, love the confirmation, right? And so, you know, we did that. We did, we actually did so much magic in that house that we had magical rules for the house. And they were all based on things that went wrong. So the very first one was no mucking about with time and space within the confines of the property because somebody did a spell that messed with everyone's life and everybody was late to where they were going because somebody had twisted time. And so that was, so no mucking about with time and space, uh, never summon anything that, that is bigger than your head. Uh, if you summon it, it's your responsibility to banish it. Uh, if, um, do not open doors and windows that you don't to other dimensions that you don't know where they go. If doors and windows open of their own accord, do not wait to see what happens. Contact the house warden immediately and never, or always, always, always take out the trash. Oh, there was one more. I forgot one. Uh, the house guests, corporeal and non-corporeal must stay in your room and may stay for only three days. And that was, yeah. We had a friend who used to invite her fairies over and they used to mess with my stuff. So. Okay. I, there are so many things I want to go. <laughs> yeah. So the, the background or the training that I've had is very much in sort of intention and working with trauma and that kind of yep. thing. So when you're talking a lot of that. about, yep. um, this is completely magic different. And, and your magic <laughs> and opening portals and doors. I'm like, like, what do you actually mean by that, both in the sort of big picture wise, but then also in, in the nitty gritty, like what is actually happening on the moment by moment basis of that happening? Okay, big question. So uh, I'm trying to think of a theme that you might have seen in, so you ever see the TV show Stargate where they like open the stargate to another location a right bit. yeah yeah you, you know it's like this aperture that opens and suddenly you can walk from one world to the next that is literally what a portal is um it, it is it doesn't have the big technology around it but it is literally you can walk from one world to the next i had a one of my students was talking to me recently and she said that she had been walking around uh in the town that she was in and she had walked by this copse of trees and that the it was not hot. It was there was no reason for there to be this sort of shimmery effect of the 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 back. It's like everything that she was looking at looked like it was being seen through a shimmer of water, but there was no water, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and she said, "Yeah, I thought about going over there." I said, "A uh, uh, good thing you didn't." And she's like, "Why?" I said, "Well, that would have walked you right into the fairy realm, and the time there." runs differently than it does here. It's a really good thing. You see that, you stay away. And she's like, okay, I'm glad I did. <laughs> yes, you are, because we wouldn't have seen you. So Okay. Yeah. So, so these are things that you, you physic you can physically walk through. It's she not like physically saw it and you can physically walk through it. Yes. Is it something okay, and she saw it because this is so outside of my realm of what I live of, of like yeah. actually seeing something. So like how do you <laughs> How do you begin that process of moving towards accepting that and working with that? And um, yeah, I, I, it's so outside when, what my mind is. I know. Like, and I have to be very careful about who I say these things in front of so I don't get committed. But, <laughs> but 
ultimately, really what it comes down to is just uh, finding enough other people who who also see things to validate them for you. Right. That's that's the thing is that it's not that you don't believe your eyes. It's that you don't believe other people will believe it. And therefore, you think it can't be real because only you have seen it. And therefore, you're going to doubt yourself. Right. Because, quote unquote, reality is consensual. Right. It's what we all agree to be true. And so if you can find enough people who agree with you that this reality is true, then your belief structure will begin to shift because you have consensual reality and it has stretched. Yes. Okay. Right? Yeah. And okay. So with this person, if, if this person had walked through that portal, what, like would they still be in this world in that would people still be able to see them and interact with them and it's their experience that would be different or are we talking like full on a different world that kind of disappear uh there are there are many mythos legends around people physically walking into the fairy mounds and disappearing and showing back up a hundred years later so that would be a physical one the fairies yeah. you're definitely disappearing physically anything else um it depends you know in a, in a lot of cases you're you're journeying consciously yeah. very rarely as your spirit leaving your body but your consciousness may leave your body and if it, there's like this big thing right now everybody's like i want to astral project it's like don't freaking astral project don't do it it's like your body is literally being you know, the spirit is taken out of your body and the only thing that connects you is a silver cord that anybody could cut while you're out why would you do that get back in your body just do consciousness traveling your consciousness can travel with very low safety issues for your body now there's safety issues for your consciousness but there are very low safety issues for your body please don't astral project Okay, so what? How do you distinguish the difference between consciousness and and the spirit? Well, so your consciousness is your mind, right? Right. It's your your mind, your thought patterns, your you know what makes up your personality, right? Your yes. spirit is your life force. It's what keeps you alive. Right. Right. So your I... consciousness is part of your spirit, but your spirit is much bigger. Yes. Okay. Yeah. My brain is just kind of trying to <laughs> keep up with all of this. Okay, so when you're when you're traveling, if you're traveling with consciousness, what is that experience like? Because again, this is like I'm thinking of you know movies where you know people might you know do these uh, go out in different places with their consciousness. But is that a those kinds of very visual uh, representations? Are those true or are those just sort of metaphorical examples of an internal experience that someone might have yeah so your question actually assumes a non-reality situation so let me just okay. let me let me adjust your question okay uh energetic reality is metaphorical in nature it is symbolic in nature and it is very rarely literal in nature so to you know your assumption based on your question is oh well it's all happening in your head 
and that it's metaphorical because you know it's it's like the dream state or whatever and it's all in your head blah 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 but that that's an incorrect assumption when you are in a metaphorical state whether it's dreaming or traveling with your consciousness you are not in your head you are in an energetic realm and so that's the structural shift you need to make in order to grasp the answer okay right yeah so if you are in an imaginative state you are in a creative energetic realm in which your belief will limit or expand your ability to create what you are imagining say that one more time okay when you're in an an imaginative state Mm -hmm. you are in a state of creation it's an energetic realm of creation yeah and that energetic realm the ability to create what you're imagining will be limited or expanded based on your belief in your ability to do it right yes So Henry David Thoreau understood this. He said, build your castles in the air and then come back and build foundations underneath them. Build your castles in the air, be in that imaginative state, and then come back and build the foundation in the physical reality that allows that energetic state to come into form. Wow, okay, yeah. (laughs) This is a very intense uh, Tuesday morning for me. (laughs) I am often told I'm intense. I'm sorry. Oh, no, this is amazing. It's just the, well, I, I don't know if, if you've experienced this, but it's it's the mind trying to keep up with where your desire wants to go. Yes. And it's this, it's like, come on. Um, yeah. So for, this is something that, uh, you know, even just before we start recording it, and you've written that in your book is that you you stitch all of these different pieces of all of this work together so it's not just a person doing one particular method or or belief system it's it's what's that bigger tapestry yes what was the process of stitching that together how did that yeah yeah how did that happen well so i grew up in the new age movement. So my mother said I was talking to ghosts in my crib. I've been doing personal growth and development work and psychic development work since I was five years old. So I grew up with self, you know, guided meditations and self divination processes and learning how to do tarot cards at, at 12 and, you know, all of this stuff. Um, and so it, it, it became part of me, right? And then I would go out and I would take these classes and I'd take it, I'd do what everybody did, right? I took a tarot class here and I took a psychic development class there and a palmistry class here. And, you know, and I just read a freak ton of books about everything I was interested in, right? I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm kind of interested in, I was fascinated with astral projection when I was a child, right? I read a lot about that. I read a lot about, uh, you know, I read a lot about the occult. I was reading about the Golden Dawn and the OTO and all of the early people like Madame Blavatsky and uh, the people and the people in the Victorian era when they were getting into all the seances and stuff like that. And uh, Aleister Crowley and Jack Parsons and the whole shebang people there. Right. 
Um, and I did a lot of reading around metaphysical topics. You know, I, Seth and Ram Dass and Abraham Hicks and, you know, messages from Michael. And, you know, I just, I just absorbed information from multiple different places, right? And, you know, I would go to retreats and people would teach me something here and there and the other place. And I would just suck it all in. And, and eventually it just integrated in my beingness, right? Like I would take a Reiki class and I, was a, I became a Reiki master teacher and I went, wait, I, I'm doing ritual and I'm doing Reiki and the Reiki is a ritual. Why am I not doing the things that I do for ritual and Reiki? And here, here's how they correlate. And, you know, and, and as it turns out, my Reiki teacher was also an Incan shaman. And so, you know, I, I, I got some of that practice from her and, you know, all of these pieces and parts. And that's what you do in the spiritual world. Everybody thinks, oh, well, you have to follow a single path. Well, no, not really. You know, everybody grabs the information that they get, that they are exposed to, and they take what works for them and they leave the rest behind. And that's fine. That's fully expected. You just have to understand how everything fits together in order for that to work. And what I like to do is break down the barriers between all of those different silos that people learn in. They, they keep them really restricted. It's like all these people who learn energy healing don't know anything about how to set sacred space in most cases. And so therefore they're, they're doing healing work in an unprotected space, which is not good for you, right? It's not good for you. It's not good for the client. You know, now, you know, people are going to say, oh, well, Reiki has protective symbols and blah, blah, blah. It's not really the same. It's not the same. Okay. But the, there are so many pieces that, you know, I see people doing magic, right? They learn Wicca and they learn, you know, hermeticism and all these different magical practices, which are fantastic. However, if you don't do your personal growth work while you do your magic work, eventually what will happen is that you will seek your power outside of yourself and you will go down very dark paths because you will go into dominance and control and black magic. Okay. This is really interesting. What is the difference between um, personal growth work and Wicca work and, and magic work? So there's no such thing as Wicca work. Um, Wicca is a religion. So we'll start okay. with that. Wicca is a religion that has certain practices within it. Um, but uh, the magic is a practice that is done within Wicca or Hermeticism or Druidism or, you know, there's, there's all kinds of different magical traditions. And uh, magic itself is a energetic construct that is designed to put an intention into the world and call it into being. Okay. That's, mm -hmm. that's what energy, that's what magic is. It is the, the fo focused intent, right? Right. So um, how that works is far more complex than that, but that's the basic construct, right? And then uh, personal growth work is doing work on yourself. So uh, magic is inherently outward-based and personal growth work is inherently inward-based. And I take that even further to uh, transformation, which is the ultimate work because you are literally... Uh, you're, you're being the Phoenix. You are being reborn out of the ashes of yourself, right? There's this tearing down of your expectations of who you think you are and this releasing of your assumptions about what you believe reality to be and who you are in context of that 
and burning that to the ground and then being reborn out of the ashes of it, right? That is the ultimate in transformation. It's called the shamanic death. And it's that way because it's it's the ego death process that you hear about in psychology, right? right. And so, you know, people are like, oh, I got to kill off my ego. It's like, yeah, sort of, right? You, you, you need to examine yourself and strip away everything that's been layered on top of you, right? So for instance, um, Kathy, my friend uh, that I work with, she is, and she's also an amazing transformational shaman. He, she has her PhD. She did her dissertation in transformational dynamics. So girlfriend's a badass, right? And so she describes it this way, and I love this. She says, we are all artesian wells. And an artesian well is a well that is a spring, right? It just, the water just springs out of it. We are all artesian wells. And over the course of our life, our uh, experiences and our assumptions and our beliefs and the things that we've been told and everything else just gets layered on top of that well. It's like garbage that gets thrown into the well. And over time, that garbage builds up and the well stops producing water because the weight of the, the garbage is stronger than the, the pressure of the water. And then the only water you get is the rainwater that collects on top of the, the garbage. And then you begin to believe that that little bit of rainwater is who you are. And it's not. It's the rainwater that's existing on top of the garbage. You are the spring. And the key is just to pull all the garbage out to get back to your spring. That metaphor makes me think so much of Kundalini energy. It, yes. <laughs> Very similar. Yes. Well, because that's also another thing is that when I think of paths to follow follow let's say mm -hmm. is that you know i i straight away think about in the east where you have this sort of this yogic path or buddhism you know these things laid out but this seems to be different but still a path and yeah could you talk a bit about the distinction between sort of that that eastern buddhist yogic type of path and what this work is yeah so um Anytime you look at uh, an established construct, right? So uh, any religion in particular, the, the challenge with religion is that it is ossified. It, it, is, it is frozen in place because the traditions are there. And yes, the traditions are comforting, but they often don't evolve with the, the culture. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, for instance, I have a friend of mine who who's Chinese and she has been in China and um, there's a, a shaman that she went to in China around some stuff that was going on. And the shaman was giving her these things to do. And she just inherently felt out of alignment with them. And she brought them back to me. And it's a very specific type of, of belief structure. And I don't even remember what the exact one was, so I'm not going to quote it. But the, the tradition that she brought back was very hierarchical and it was very, um, this is good and that is bad. And, you know, you've got to appease the bad spirits and you have to in entice the good spirits. And there was very little self-empowerment. There was very little sense of self as God. 
And, you know, that was her core belief structure. And so she was having a hard time being with it. And I'm like, okay, well, let's look at the reasoning behind it. What is the, what is the purpose? Because she had this cultural conflict where she wanted to do what they were telling her because culturally that's what she was indoctrinated to do. Right. Um, and so she really wanted to do this because it was part of her culture, but she felt out of alignment. And I'm like, well, let's find, let's find what the purpose of the thing is that they're offering you. And let's find something that's in alignment with you. That's still with the purpose. Right. And yeah. that's the key, right. Is to, to be able to recognize that this particular construct may not work for you, but if you know enough about how constructs are created, if you know enough about the metaphors that are being used, if you know enough about the purpose behind the construct, then you can construct something of your own that fits better with your own belief structure, fits better with your own beingness, which will then therefore be more effective, right? And so, but you have to understand the underpinnings first, right? And so that's what I'm all about. I teach people about the underpinnings. I teach them how to understand everything that they're interacting with. I am completely non-denominational around things. I'm, I'm not pro or, or against any religion. I am pro or against people being told what to believe. Okay. Yeah. So you are welcome to believe whatever you want. And I will support you in helping to translate whatever, whatever pieces of your belief structure feel ossified to you, right? Whatever pieces feel like they didn't make it into the present day and, and aren't really aligned with current day culture. Right. Because every every book that's ever been written has been written in the context of the time in which it was written. And if you don't understand that context, you don't understand the book. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Th that's something that I'm just coming around to now in terms of a, um, a, a body understanding of that, because mm -hmm. I think we kind of get that in our minds, but we still read something and we're like, oh, this is the truth because it was, uh, you know, written by this person. Right. Um, 2,500 years ago, 5,000 yeah. years ago, whatever. And it's like, what was the culture at the time? Does yeah. this word mean what you actually think it means? Because I'm not sure it does, right? Yeah. I mean, that's another thing, man. I've been looking into languages and, you know, there are some languages where it's like, well, it's not even worth learning the language to read what was written back then because it's completely different. Right. It's well, I mean, look at our own language. I mean, in... Uh, in the 1950s, the word sick meant to be ill. And in the 1990s, the word sick meant cool, rockin', badass, right? It did not mean to be ill in about half the cases. And that's only in 50 years. Imagine what happens in 2000, right? Plus then cross cultures. Exactly. Plus cross cultures, plus cross language, right? Because language it changes it. I mean, I was fluent in Spanish in high school and I had a, a topic that we were talking about and I was thinking about it in English and I had one opinion and I was thinking about it in Spanish and I had a completely different opinion because language formulates your thoughts. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I keep needing to try and like refocus because I'm like, oh, <laughs> a billion things to go to. Um, you said before about... Um, magic that it's an intention that you then make uh, manifest yes and you're like a prayer or a spell or a manifestation they're all the same thing yeah so then my question is does the actual 
you know, if it's, I've never done a spell, but I'm assuming that there are specific I words. I guarantee or... you, you've done a spell. Oh, okay. Let's go there before okay. I ask my question. So what do you mean by that? What, what have you wanted that you ever ha- had happen? Um, gosh, um, I really wanted to get into a university that I, you know, in my mind was just like, this is going to happen, going to happen. And then it happened, even though odds were. Okay. So (laughs) you had it in your mind. You said it's going to happen. It's going to happen. That's a spell. Okay. So then when, because when I think of spell, I go straight to, you know, kind of what's portrayed in, in media. Like, you know, you you say specific words and all that. You you can't trust Hollywood. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. yeah, But but my, my question comes to, is it just about intention and any specific structure given to it is just something to enhance that? Or are there some spells or some things to open portals, say that the specific steps are actually required beyond the intention of having it happen? Depends on who you ask. Okay. And I will, I will tell you why. Okay. So there are, there are two different ways to do magic. Right? There's high magic and low magic. High magic is high ceremonial magic. And in high ceremonial magic, they do the exact same thing every time to create a specific outcome. And how you hold your hand, how you twist the wand, what you use, the, the things that you do with it, every, every little piece matters because the way that that magic works is by linking into every person who's ever done it exactly this way throughout history and you link all of your energies together to create what you're creating, okay? And so, yes, every single step counts in those traditions. Mm-hmm. I am not a high magic person. I do not have the patience to learn the, the niggly little details. It drives me batshit. I can't do it. So I am a low magic person. I do chaos magic. And what I do is I reach into the chaos, chaos realms, also known as the primordial ooze of creation, right? And I grab a piece of energy from that and I breathe what I want into it. And I do that through setting my intention and focusing my will and believing it into being, which is effectively law of attraction work, right? Yeah. Yes. Same idea. Now, there's a third way to do it, but it's much harder. And that's supplication, which is prayer right? Where you ask a god or a goddess, please give me this. And then you make an offering. And that is uh, your payment for the thing that you get. Now, every tradition that has a god or a goddess or whatever has something of this nature. In Christianity, it is, you know, please, God, you know, do this for me. I promise I'll never do this again or you know we 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 do that that we we inherently understand that there needs to be an offering in exchange for the request and so that's that's another way but that is entirely dependent upon the will of the god or goddess and the whim of the god or goddess and they often are very whimsical so you know you get what you get right there's something that i've been finding really interesting with prayer is that I've never done a prayer of saying like, you give me this, I'll give you this, but the prayer to something greater 
increases the belief in me that it will happen. So it's almost right. like the prayer Which is you're borrowing it. Look, yes. Right. So what you're doing is you're borrowing the your belief from the thing that you believe in that's high, that's greater than you, theoretically greater than you. But if if I tell you that you are the thing that's greater than you, and then therefore you are only borrowing belief from yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because my um understanding is that it's almost like because I understand that point of like you are the greater thing, but the challenge is well, your mind's gonna be like, no, you're not, you know. So it's almost like the and I'd be interesting to to know if this is a correct way of viewing it, is that the the prey is like the stepping stone to eventually believing in who you fully are. I don't necessarily believe that. I'm not a big fan of the praying. And the reason I'm not a big fan of it is by definition, you are handing over your power and putting yourself at the will of something else. And so that is never going to get you to a place of empowered creation because you're literally abdicating your power to something that you think is better suited to it than you are. So every time you do that, you're saying, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm not good enough to be able to do this on my own. And you're reinforcing your belief that you suck at this. So then what would be the process that you would recommend for going from someone going, I don't believe I can do this. It, it feels too much to, how do you go from there to doing it and believing in it? And so step number one is to follow up all of your intentions with action. Act as if it is going to happen. And I'm betting when you got into that school, you did a lot of things that were assumptive. That you walked around saying, I'm getting into such and so. You know, I, this is the college I'm going to. You made plans in your head about all the ways in which you would get to that school and what you would do there and all the places you'd go and how you would have an experience of it and all of this. You made plans around that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's one of the most powerful ways of calling something into being is to start acting as if. Not on a, you know, fake it till you make it level because that doesn't work. But acting as if as in, I, I can taste this. It is so real to me. I, it must be true. And therefore, I am taking steps as though it has already happened to, in my head, make plans for that. And I'm going to put a lot of energy into these plans, not imaginings, not dreams, plans, goals, right? That will then, if, if it didn't come to fruition, that would be a lot of wasted energy. But you don't care because it's coming to fruition. You know it to be true, right? Mm -hmm. That is the way you do that. Okay. Um, so what this is, is your... why I asked you to identify a specific time. Because yeah. if I talk about it in generalities, you don't get it. But if I put you back to that specific time, you go, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I did, right? Yeah. Yeah. And what's your understanding of how the law of attraction works? It's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> Abraham Hicks has been talking about that for about 40 years now. So um, I will give you a short answer. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, we don't have 40 years. But 
we'll just warp time and yeah yeah, yeah yeah it'll be fine so the the short answer is uh whatever you know they, they've said this whatever you can see can conceive and believe you can achieve right that's the the statement right if you can think about it if you can conceive that it could happen and then you can believe that it could happen then you will make it happen right so that's the the basic premise of the whole big picture now if we take that into a smaller segment what that means is that you have to decide what you want be very clear about it do not attach to the how because that's not your job we provide the destination and the motivation the universe provides the navigation okay so you pick the the what the destination you provide the motivation you follow it up with action and you let the universe tell you where to go right mm. and so that piece the reason that your manifestation was so successful that you did around the school was because you were so excited about it you were so passionate about it emotion amplifies manifestation good or bad okay Ooh. right so fear will manifest faster than anything you have seen because we it goes wild in our system right so this yeah. is why fear is your biggest enemy. You need to get out of fear as soon as humanly possible because it will continue to manifest a crappy life for you. Because everything you're afraid is going to happen, it will work to manifest because you're putting huge amounts of energy in the form of emotion into it. So you have to stop worrying immediately. How do you, how, what, what do you do when that fear comes or when you have the thought that goes, it will never happen. I can't do this. Right. Or, well, you yeah, know, this is the thing, right? We have this, what if something horrible happens, right? Well, what if something amazing happens? You know, it could just as easily be true. It could just as easily be true that, that, you know, you, picked up a scratch ticket off the ground and won a million dollars. That could happen. I found $250 on the ground more than once. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think the challenge that is that we are far more susceptible to feeling fear and going into the doubt than we are to feeling the love and the possibility and believing in ourselves. Yes. But but that's trauma brain talking. But it is still very present. I, I mean it is if we're talking about a kind of where most people are at right now. Yeah, the, that's collective reality. Yeah. Right? Consensual reality. You just have to find enough people to believe something different for that to change for you right? This is the thing, right? So there's, there's two pieces, right? There's consensual reality, which is the whiny, bitchy, wah, wah, wah world of everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket. So why bother? Wah, wah, wah. That's consensual reality, right? And then there's trauma brain and trauma brain is its own thing. It is very real. It literally, trauma literally shrinks your brain and it messes with the way that you regulate. And so, um, you have to address the self-regulation issues and you have to address the way that your brain has shrunk and to re-fortify re your brain. 
and uh, dialectical behavioral therapy and uh, cognitive behavioral therapy are excellent starting points for getting out of trauma brain. EMDR uh, therapy is fantastic for that. Um, but they will only take you so far because what they don't address is the energetics of the situation. And so we have all been collectively traumatized. I don't care who you are. If you've been on the planet for the last two years, you have been freaking traumatized because we have been in a life or death situation for two years. Walking out your front door has meant potentially dying. And therefore that was traumatizing. And if that wasn't enough, you probably had trauma in your early childhood as well because you wouldn't be listening to the podcast if you didn't, right? That's kind of the way this works. The spiritual world brings in the traumatized. That is what we do, right? And so you have to acknowledge that that's been true. And then you have to address it on an energetic level as well as on an emotional level. And so CBD, CBT and DBT will only get you so far because you have to come in and address it on an energetic level. And then you also have to learn a new perspective for uh, how to see your life and how to perceive the world around you and learn to see yourself differently. Because what trauma does for you is that it lands you flat on your face, right? And you, it smacks you down on the ground and everybody else is walking around like they're standing up. And you're laying on the ground, dazed and stunned and scratched up. And everybody's walking around around you. And you're sitting there going, please don't step on my hands and feet. Please don't kick me in the head. Please don't kick me in the butt, right? And yet they do all the time because they have no idea that you're laying on the ground, right? At some point, you're like, well, okay, I, I better get up and move around. So you grab a skateboard and you stick it under your face. And now you're walking around on your elbows and your knees with your face on a skateboard and your head off to the side. Because when you landed on the ground, you landed with your face sideways. And that's how you see the world is from ground level with your face sideways, which means you see up people's skirts. You can see what's going on with them. You know what's going on inside of them. However, you they don't know that you're on the ground. And so when they look at you, they're like, what is wrong with you, right? Because a crack in the sidewalk shows up and you're rolling along on your skateboard with that non-skid surface on your face. And that front wheel hits, you're gonna scratch up your face. And the front wheel, back wheel hits and you're gonna scratch up your face again. And you're gonna be going, oh my God, there's a crack in the sidewalk. And everybody else is looking at you like, Oh my God, you are out of your mind. Why are you being such a drama queen? It's just a crack in the sidewalk. Step over it. You're like, you don't understand, right? And this is what it means to live with the trauma perspective. And so you have to literally learn how to get up off the skateboard to see the world from a standing position. And this is where most people have a hard time with therapy is that they get to a certain point and they've made progress. And then the therapist says, okay, so no, you know, walk straight and take a left and you turn your skateboard sideways and slide along the ground. And then you look up and you're like, I don't know how to get up. What do you mean turn left? Right? Because that's left to you. But the person who's telling you is standing upright. And so you've gone in completely the wrong direction. And they're like, um, that's not really what I meant. So they give you another direction and you try to follow that and you still don't understand. But they won't tell you what to do because you have to come to it of your own accord because that's part of therapy. And, you know, they want you to have your aha moment, but you have no idea what they're doing for the directions because you're coming at it from completely different angles. And that's the difference is that, you know, I, I look at people and I'm like, no, 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 you're on a skateboard. You need to get up off the skateboard. This is the perspective you're holding. This is the one you need to hold. And they go, 
what? And their brain is twisting and you can watch their brain trying to wrap itself around this new concept. And, and you're like, it's okay. Just let your brain sink into it. It'll be fine. And once you're upright, it'll make much more sense. Right. And I, I literally just tell them the new perspective, which they don't get in therapy because therapists don't do that. I'm, I'm like, no, you got to tell them because they're not going to figure it out because they're coming at it from the wrong direction. Right. Somebody just freaking tell me. Right. And that's what we do. So we just, we give you the different perspective and we're like, okay, this is the healthy perspective. And then you just got to wrap your head around it. Once you do, everything changes, right? That's the, the getting out of the trauma brain. And can you speak to what the, the tangibles, the specifics are of that new perspective? Well, it depends on the perspective, but overall, uh, the difference is between assuming the worst in life and assuming that things will be reasonable, you know, between assuming that everybody is just five seconds away from being angry with you to assuming that everybody's cool with you if they, unless they say otherwise. I mean, that would be a, a brilliant thing, right? Just that alone yeah. would be amazing, yeah. right? It, it's from having arguments in your head with people that you would never have out loud with them. And then, you know, trying to win over and over and over and over and over again and winning in your head, but then never saying anything out loud, right? To, you know, if, if you're upset with somebody, you say, hey, that wasn't okay. Please don't do that again. And they go, oh, yeah, okay. Okay. That's the difference. Okay. Those are just a few examples, but there are massive amounts of examples of ways in which this significantly impacts and changes the way you see yourself and the way you think about things. And so if someone is experiencing one of those where, where they're like, that, that'd be great if I could think that way, but you know, I'm, I'm so entrained in this way is yeah. the process, like you say, you know, get around people who have a mm. believe things differently. Like what, what's the way of making that transition? Yeah. So uh, my short answer is take my class, <laughs> okay, yep. but, um, the, it's, it's a lot harder to do in, in society because the challenge comes in the fact that when traumatized people surround themselves with traumatized people, because they need somebody to see and acknowledge their pain. And so, you know, traumatized people are willing to see each other's pain and to acknowledge it, but they're also more likely to traumatize each other again. Because they have what, especially, so there are two types of trauma that people go into, two sort of patterns. One is the warrior, knight in shining armor, and the other is the damsel in distress. Right. And if they're in the damsel in distress, then they are clinging on to other people and begging for their help and begging for their energy and sucking their energy and nobody who's a healthy person is going to want to hang out with that person. Okay. Because what do they get out of the relationship? They don't get anything out of that relationship, right? They, they get to, to parent someone who should be parenting themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they're not going to, they're not going to choose to hang out with them. And so what they do is, is the night, the damsels hang out with the knights. And so the knights get to feel good about themselves for rescuing the damsels but they also get their energy sucked and they get angry eventually because they're not being, you know, they, they feel good about themselves, but eventually they get angry about something because they get empty because they've been giving and giving and giving and giving so that they can feel good about themselves. And then they get empty and angry and then they yell at or abuse the damsel and the damsel gets hurt again and collapses again. 
Okay. Yeah. And this is the pattern that happens, right? And so, you know, if you're a knight in shining armor, you're a little bit easier to be with for healthy people, but you're a bull in a china shop because you're having to prove your worth all the time by doing for others and whether or not they've asked you to. And so you'll often fix things that don't need fixing, right? And that in fact, maybe counterproductive to what the other person was intending because you didn't ask. And so it's very hard for people who are healthy to hang out with people who are not healthy, okay? Because the dynamics are different, right? You put two, two knight in shining armors together and they're like, yeah, okay, we're good. But you're only gonna get warrior love. And warrior love is, dude, you got a soft spot here. And I'm just gonna punch on that soft spot until you know that that soft spot's there so that you'll toughen it up because that's what warrior love is. Get that armor up so that you don't get hurt. I'm gonna hurt you as your friend so that you don't get hurt worse by somebody else, right? That's warrior love, okay? And that doesn't allow you to be soft and vulnerable and open, which is what is necessary to step into a healthier space. Right. So you have to have a controlled container in which you can practice these new skills. So a group therapy session in, you know, CBT or DBT group therapy might be a good place. Assuming you have a really good therapist who will, you know, put the kibosh on anybody else being obnoxious at you. Right. Um, but it's it's very much about finding a safe space to be in. Some, some workshops have, have those spaces. The problem with workshops is that they're short-term, right? So you'll get this experience for a weekend and then you'll be like, oh my God, this is so amazing. And then you go back to your life where you're surrounded by knights and damsels and everything collapses. And you're like, oh, this doesn't work in my life, right? And so, you know, that's the challenge. But yeah, I mean, yes, if you could find a healthy community and live in it, then yes, that would eventually get you there. But that's a very difficult thing to do for the reasons that I've stated, right? Yeah. Healthy people want to hang with other healthy people. Right. Yeah. So they don't get like whacked by accident, you know, yeah. they'll do it on short term basis, but they don't want to live in it. Right. This brings to mind something that I found really interesting is that you you've spoken to how there are three stages of mm -hmm. um, doing spiritual work. When I was listening to that, the well, first, could you actually describe those stages for listeners? And then sure. I've got some questions about things okay. that don't match up with my map. So okay, so um, so the 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 three stages are as follows: you need to find emotional and energetic safety. That's that's step one. So that the the average person who's been through trauma has so much random crap running through their brain. This sort of sense of um, you know, oh my God, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm upset at this person. They might be upset at me. You know, somebody said, oh, I need to talk to you. And, and I don't know what they need. La, 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 la. Right. Your whole mind, your entire bandwidth of your day is spent in this anxious, you know, spinning state. And you don't have the bandwidth to grow until you can deal with that. And so that stage is about addressing fear and anxiety and worry and dread and self-doubt and inner and outer judgment. And it's about building a foundation of self-support and courage. Okay. And once you've done that, then you can move into the next stage, which is solidifying your energetic container, also known as your sense of self, your identity, your personal power. Okay. That is an e the easy way to determine whether or not you have a problem with this is 
to say, okay, I'm going to make a big decision just for myself, not for anybody else, just for me. And I'm going to make this big decision. Can you make the decision without having to build up energy, build up energy, build up energy, and then pull the trigger immediately before all the energy drains back out again, right? If your pattern looks like that, then you have holes and tears in your energy field. And you need to do the work around claiming your space, setting your boundaries, owning your power, internalizing your sense of value, and learning to love yourself. Along with those things, you'll also be doing work around emptying your well of rage and opening your heart. And so those pieces create a solid energetic container, a solid sense of self, a solid identity, and a solid sense of your own power. Once you have done that, once you are really clear about who you are, what your boundaries are, then and only then should you step into the third stage of the work, which is what most people refer to as shadow work, which is digging out the buttons and triggers that send you flying. Because until you've got those two first pieces done, the shadow work will be too much for you to manage. It will re-traumatize you if you try to do it in the early, in, in, before you've done that first stage, you will get re-traumatized or it will not work at all. One or the other will happen. If you have good sense of self-preservation, it will not work at all. If you have a terrible sense of self-preservation, which most of us have, have trauma do, then you will re-traumatize yourself, okay? So people try and skip to shadow work without doing the first two pieces and that's why they have such a hard time. And because they have a hard time and either it doesn't work or they re-traumatize themselves, they think, well, I'm a hopeless case and then they quit. And that's the biggest travesty out of everything. Yeah. So first I, I want to acknowledge that that makes a lot of sense and I really see it. And then when I look at my own training, I'm like, hey, things don't match up. So I want to okay. uh, see, see if your massive amount of experience can clarify things. Okay. Um, so one of the main methods I use is called uh, emotional freedom techniques, which for mm -hmm. anyone listening who doesn't know, you basically think about something that's distressing in your life and then you tap on points on your body that come from acupuncture and that essentially calms down the part of your brain that's going, danger, danger, this is horrible, and it allows you to process that in a, in a sense. And the... Technically... So I've studied the, the energy meridians in Chinese yep. medicine. And technically what that would do is activate the meridians to shift the energy in that particular center of your body in that particular area. So the premise is that, that every emotion lives in a part of your body. And so if you're tapping on a particular meridian and it happens to be related to that section of your body that holds that emotion, then it would allow that... Um, in Chinese medicine, what you do is you tonify or you, um, oh crap word, uh, it's the opposite of it. So tonify is to pull energy into it. And I don't remember the other one, which is release the energy in my brain. Yeah. I'm too old. Okay. Um, but the, the premise is that you're bringing it into balance, right? And then that an emotion that's stuck in that center would be something that would bring it out of balance and through tapping, you're bringing the attention of the body to that, that meridian and allowing that to bring itself into balance, thereby releasing that emotion. So I just I needed to clarify that in the way you were saying it because it's relevant. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think also what's really interesting with, at least from where I'm coming from, is like there are still 
so there's still research being done in a Western way about it. Yeah. Um, which I find really interesting trying to be like, which okay. Really well, hysterical. Have... 5,000 years of history yeah. is not sufficient to, to justify yeah. it to Western medicine. Okay, whatever. Um, but, um, um, I, I will say just briefly though that I, I don't think it's all bad because I think we are discovering things that I'm not sure the, the um, traditional Chinese acupuncture was aware of in terms of changes in the brain. They might have been. I'm not uh, super knowledgeable you, in traditional you know, Chinese acupuncture. That attached to the brain. So probably not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, um, and again, this is again the tearing down of the 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 um, silos, right? That we were talking yeah. about. It's like you know, yeah, let's get everything looking at everything else. So I'm with you. Yeah. I, it's just the uh, there's there's um sometimes there's a bit of hubris involved. So oh, I'm, I'm with you on that um, one, hundred percent. Yeah. Absolutely, there is there is benefit to be had to looking at any any system from another system's perspective, right? Yeah. Um. Right. So, so if we look at the, the th three stages that you mentioned mm -hmm. is that for me, I go, okay, when I'm working with someone and they say, you know, there's this terrible thing that happened, mm -hmm. the, the kind of model that I have is going, okay, the reason that a person is in distress is because there's, there is a button. And so if we resolve that button, then the person feels safe. No. The, so I'm the, wondering the reason the person is in, in distress is because there is a trauma. That's a different yes. thing than a button. Okay. So then I, it's, it's an important distinction. So uh, the trauma is the original situation that happened. A button is something that gets re-triggered every time a similar situation happens. Yeah. Okay? They're very different. Okay. The trauma is stored in the body. And can often, so there's a process in, in shamanism called soul retrieval. Mm -hmm. And trauma is often associated with a loss of a piece of the soul. Because when someone has a traumatic experience, and trauma defined as an experience that they cannot in the moment process and accept. That is effectively what trauma is. Right. And so when you have a pro uh, an experience in the moment that you cannot effectively process and accept, then a part of yourself shears off to hold that trauma until the rest of you can begin to process and accept it. And the act of soul retrieval is, is bringing that piece of you home and in the process, processing and accepting the experience and removing it from traumatic and into and, and re-relegating it into another experience that you've had, right? Yes. Yes. So it's an important distinction because a button is a belief that you have about yourself, a fear. So a button actually has to have two pieces associated with it. It has to say, I am X and X is bad. So if you can disprove either that X is bad or that you are X, you will no longer have the button. Okay, so then where does, because, okay, this is going to be fun trying to bring these two out together <laughs> because because where I come from is it says something bad happened to you. And yes, that's because that, yeah, so there was that trauma. And because of that, now you have a button. You've gone, 
you know, someone with your brain is going, right, you know, someone who looks like this is dangerous, say. And now whenever you see someone who looks like that, you get that hit of, I don't feel safe. Um, all in a very kind of generalized term that we're talking here. Yes. And so the, the process with uh, emotional freedom te techniques is you process the trauma. And in doing so, the button just sort of falls away with it. And so when I look for at some your... trauma that will work for other traumas, it will not. Okay. So where do you know where, like what kinds of traumas that won't work for and why? So for traumas that are about others, right? So, so for a button that was formed out of a belief like you like you just said, you know, I, you know, I was attacked by a large person, you know, they, they were very big and intimidating. And now anytime I see a large and intimidating person, I feel like I'm going to be attacked, right? Yeah. That is a situational trauma that is based on a belief that one experience equals all experience, right? Yeah. Now, that is an externalized belief structure that if you if you process the trauma maybe the other thing will go away it will certainly be lessened but it will not necessarily go away okay it will it, it can it can just fall apart it just depends on how strongly the belief was held how long the belief was held you got to remember neuronal pathways are things that we run down over and over again. So if the trauma is recent, it can very easily clear, right? But if the trauma is old, that neuronal pathway is very well worn. And you're going to, by default and by habit, go running down that pathway, no matter whether or not that trauma was addressed or not. Because it's a habit to do so. And then you have to readdress the habit, right? Right. And so it becomes even harder when so there's the trauma the thing that happened and then there's what we made it mean right yeah so the what we made it mean is often more dangerous and damaging than the trauma itself right um i my boyfriend broke up with me that's the trauma I am unlovable and no one will ever love me again. That's what I made it mean. Okay. Yeah. I have now identified as unlovable. That is far more damaging as a mindset than my boyfriend broke up with me. Right. You have many things that you could make it mean. My boyfriend broke up with me. He's a dick. Right. That you could just yeah. make it mean that. Right. But I am unlovable is going to damage you much further. Right. I, nobody wants me. I must not be good enough. Somebody else was better than me. You know, all these stories are things that you make it mean about you that you then buy into an identity for yourself. And you remember that artesian well we were talking about? That's a whole lot of garbage that you're dumping right into that well. Okay. Right, that you yeah. will eventually have to dig out. Right. And clearing the trauma of my boyfriend broke up with me is not going to solve what you made it mean. Okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So then what's the process by which you, in the kind of work you do, how do you deal with that meaning aspect? 
Well, we we look directly at the meaning piece. We look at, okay, what's let's look at the difference between what the experience was versus what we made it mean. We, we start to own that we choose the what we make it mean. And we start to work on how do you make it mean something different? How do you make it mean something? Because in many cases, you have no idea what the true answer is. So why would you pick something that would damage you? If you're going to tell yourself a story, pick a story that works for you. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So my friend, Shelly Campbell, she had a, a, a thing where she said that she was believing for a long time in her life that when you die, you just cease to exist. And it was making her miserable. And the older she got, the more upset she got about it because she was like closer to death and non-existence. And she said, you know what? I don't know what happens on the other side. No, I, I can't say. Why am I choosing something that makes me miserable? I'm going to believe that I get reincarnated as something awesome. And she said she's never feared death since. Okay. If you don't know, if you can't know, tell yourself a story that supports you, not one that, that deflates you or abuses you. Yeah. And is part of that process of telling the new story repetition? To part of it's repetition. That. Part of it's... Part of it's, um, there's a, there's a <laughs> that logical support, right? So I'm, I'm really frustrated that, uh, the U S stopped, stopped teaching critical thinking, uh, you know, a number of years ago in, in their regular school curriculum. And it was only specialized these days for philosophy students. I'm like, um, no, everybody needs critical thinking, right? But this is the thing, right? It's like you're sitting there and you're going, okay, so this is why conspiracy theories are going wild right now. It's because people don't know how to critically think. It's like, um, let's do the math, right? Mm, if this were true, then this and this and this would have to be true. And what is the likelihood of those things being true, right? So critical thinking can help you as well. It, it can, you can look at an issue and you're like, okay, so I'm going to believe in reincarnation and, uh, instead of believing that we cease to exist. Okay. Let me find evidence to support that belief. Well, let's look at all the, you know, um, post life experiences, right. You know, crossing over experiences. Let's read mediumship stuff. Let's, let's do, uh, you know, let's look at how the Dalai Lama is chosen. Let's look at all these uh, people who remember past lives and remember them in detail that has been proven. And let's look all of this stuff. Right. And then, you know, that will provide me with the support I need to believe, right? Yeah. So you look right. for evidence to support your new belief. And that's, and so there's this wonderful thing called confirmation bias, which says that if I want to believe something, I will find things to support it. Well, you know, that's not so great for being neutral, but it's really great for helping you to reinforce belief structures that are going to be more healthy for you, right? So you might as well utilize your own confirmation bias to reprogram your own brain. I really love that aspect of your work of all these different elements. It's like, it's, you know, not just energy work. You're also going, well, I, yeah, read things. That, right. That's part of the, um, <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah, um, I have a lot of recommended books that I, and movies that I recommend just so that people can 
they can see it out in the world and they can get a different perspective on it. I'm as people get further along in my program, I actually recommend that they go out and do rituals and stuff with other people so that they can begin to understand and see things in different perspectives because everybody's got a different experience. I don't want anybody to just study once with me and think that they've got it all because there's so much out there in the world and I'm not the be all end all. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that could be a confirmation bias thing there. Um, one other thing uh, when I'm thinking about the, the three stages that you talk about is yeah. the second step you talk about solidifying the identity. Mm -hmm. um, and so much of things that I've heard about is let go of the identity, be no one. Um, so how, how does that match okay. up? So here we go. Ready? Yeah. Okay. So there are two paths to enlightenment. There is a masculine path. Now I'm going to say masculine and feminine. Please do not take this as gender. These are tantric framework, whatever, and PC thing been said. Okay, done. So there, there are two paths. There's the masculine path, which is the path from the heart chakra up. And that's the path that most traditions teach, which is strip away, strip away, strip away, strip away, strip away everything until you become nothing and you become one with everything, right? Mm -hmm. The feminine path is from the heart chakra down, which is accept and receive, accept and receive without judgment, with compassion, everything until you have accepted and received everything to the point where you become everything and you are one with everything. And the true path of enlightenment is to do both at the same time and have it not be a paradox. Okay. So then what are some of the ways of like how, what, um, yeah, if you could see his face right now, his face is just like, it's like his brain is going click, 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 chunk. right, yeah. Okay, I think fund the, the, the basic question I have is like, how do you do that? What's the, how, how do you go both directions of the? Well, first you learn to do each path, okay? So the the strip away, strip away until you're nothing and one with everything is, is the path of releasing the ego, right? Mm -hmm. The ego and the identity are not necessarily the same thing. Initially, they will feel like they are, okay? I'll just give you two seconds to process. Okay, the ego and the not. Okay, yep. Okay, cool, yep, I think I've got that. <laughs> okay, so, so the ego is the perception of self, the identity is the truth of self. Yeah. Okay, so, um, the stripping away path is the stripping away of the ego, the releasing of limiting beliefs, the releasing of the, the false beliefs of self, all of mm -hmm. that, right? It's the emptying of the artesian well, right? The feminine path is the path of embodiment, of beingness, of being in a state of acceptance. It is the being the water in the well, Okay. It mm -hmm. is the experience of being that water in the well, shooting up and, and bubbling and burbling and, and the ecstatic experience of just being the water. Okay. So it, it, when people step from one path onto the other, and this, this path is far harder to find in regular spiritual practice. Uh, that's why so many people turn to Tantra because it's one of the few paths that actually goes down this in any sort of way that's not completely esoteric and you know super high level right um people turn to tantra because it is an embodiment path red tantra in particular is an embodiment path right mm 
it's not the only embodiment path, but it's one that people can relate to. And so the embodiment path is about being, being with. It's not about doing. It's the path of great mystery, right? So you, the, the masculine path is the light. So you think about, you see, you understand everything. The path of the feminine is the darkness. It's the yin and the yang, right? So the feminine is the darkness. It is the mystery. It is the, the potentiality of all that is. You do not go into the darkness and look for the light switch to try and understand it. But that's what most people try and do, right? You go into the darkness to experience it, to be with it, and to allow it to permeate your being. Wow, okay. Okay, and then once you can fully embody the beingness, and you can be in acceptance and compassion without judgment of all that is, then you can begin to practice both at the same time, the understanding and the knowingness and the accepting and the beingness. Wow, okay. Um, I, I don't think my brain can take much more. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to have to re-listen to that a, a lot. Um, if okay yeah let's let's wrap this up so um, <laughs> just while our brain is still mildly functioning um if people would like to find out more about you work with you in some way uh what's the best way they can do that and i'll put all of the links in the description of the episode fantastic yes uh kellysparta.com k-e-l-l-e-s-p-a-r-t-a.com uh if you want to hear more from me you can follow my podcast spirit sherpa uh, I would give you the podcast address, but it's currently not working. My podcast provider decided to discontinue its website and told me that many times, and I for just ignored it and thought it'll be fine, and it isn't. So we're now having to build a website for the podcast feed. So eventually it will be com again, but that doesn't work at the moment. So please just go to Spiritripa on your local podcast player, <laughs> whatever works for you. It's on pretty much everything. Um, but yes, the, the starter place, if you're in the beginning phases, the place to start is the Inner Peace 101 program. And that's the one that deals with finding energetic and emotional safety. And uh, it takes four months and it completely changes the way you see yourself. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been, well, I don't really have words for it, so I'll just let, <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you so much. My pleasure. It's, this has been a lot of fun. Hi there. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Wise Roots podcast with Kelly Sparta. What you are hearing now is being recorded a few weeks after that episode was recorded. I want to address something that was said in the episode that I didn't properly address in the moment. When I brought up emotional freedom techniques, EFT, uh, Kelly and I spoke about the difference between processing trauma and processing the meaning we make from a trauma. When listening back to this, I realized it made it sound as though EFT cannot address the meaning we make from a trauma. However, this is not true, and I want to explain why. My understanding of what Kelly was speaking about was forming a meaning around a single trauma. Uh, the example she gave was someone breaking up with you, and you then make that mean that you are unlovable and no one will ever love you again. 
Her point being that simply processing the trauma of the breakup in many situations won't address the meaning that was formed as a result of the trauma. Given that EFT is fundamentally about processing stress, it would initially seem that it is ineffective here. However, there is a different model of understanding trauma and the meaning we make that is present in EFT, which is as follows. A metaphor that is often used with EFT is that of a table. The top of the table represents a belief or a problem that we have. For example, I am unlovable. The table legs represent the specific things that have happened in our lives that support that belief or problem. For example, someone breaking up with you. What I want to draw your attention to is that the table has multiple legs. So too, there are generally multiple things that have happened to us that support any one meaning we might make about ourselves or the world. So in EFT, we process the multiple traumas, which causes the tabletop, i.e. the belief, I am unlovable, to collapse and no longer be present. We no longer believe what we used to because the things that made us believe it have been released. In other words, there's a reason someone might make a breakup mean that they are unlovable. There are specific things that have happened to that person which primes them to make that meaning instead of any other meaning. In EFT, we work through those deeper layers, which means that we're able to create a deeply powerful transformation because it's getting to the deeper root causes. To my understanding, the reason the meaning we make from a trauma is sometimes transformed by only processing a single trauma is because the meaning is either being held up mostly by that trauma or entirely by that trauma. So removing it either removes its only support or destabilizes the table enough for the meaning to fall away. All of this to say that EFT is a very powerful technique that can absolutely address the meanings we make from traumas. And in fact, addressing core beliefs is known to be one of the most powerful ways to work with EFT. I wanted to share this given that EFT is one of the main modalities I use. I've been trained and I'm certified in clinical EFT, and it's something that I've found to be phenomenally helpful for both myself and clients. There is a significant and ever-increasing amount of scientific evidence supporting EFT's efficacy. There's also science that shows the powerful and rapid effects that occur in our brain and body when using EFT. We're beginning to see what might be happening from the lens of traditional Chinese acupuncture, which is the lens Kelly was using, and the positive anecdotal evidence is overwhelming in its size. Now that I've addressed that, here's the outro. You've been listening to the Wise Roots podcast. If you want to find out more about this work or contact me, you can find the info in the description of this podcast. If you like this, please share it around. Thank you for listening. Over and out.